This episode originally aired on February 3rd, 2021. Since then, there have been several developments relating to Havana syndrome. We're going to discuss those at the end. But first, here's what we knew back in February. The building that houses uh, American diplomats and spies in Havana is a heavily fortified compound, a a big cube, and it sits right off uh, the main drag, the Malacan, by the ocean. If you start talking to people who knew people who were there, right, and start piecing together the actual chronology, what appears to have happened is that a couple of members of the embassy staff in their homes started to hear these strange sounds at night, and they were enormously loud, deafening, like a jet plane taking off next to your house. The people who experienced the syndrome began experiencing dizziness, nausea, headaches, all of them severe. And over time, suspicion grew that they were being targeted by a hostile intelligence service. You've just been listening to Tim Weiner and Jack Hitt describing Havana syndrome. That was the name given to the illness that started to affect Americans at the U.S. Embassy in Cuba in late 2016. The embassy had only reopened the year before. It was still early days. But now, more and more people were getting sick, and there was no clear cause for the symptoms. What was clear was the State Department's response. They flew home the people who were sick, then they cut staff at the embassy by 60%. In 2017, Trump Secretary of State Rex Tillerson warned Americans not to travel to Cuba. Over the last four years, doctors, scientists, government agencies, and journalists have been trying to find out what happened in Havana. And this is where the story gets even stranger. The leading explanation is that the illness was caused by a foreign microwave attack. I'm Laura Marsh, the literary editor of The New Republic. And I'm Alex Perrine, a staff writer at the magazine. Today on the show, we're talking to a range of experts about what they think happened in Cuba and what it might mean. This is The Politics of Everything. So I remember hearing about the mysterious Havana embassy symptoms when they first started getting reported in the press a few years ago. When I first heard the weird audio weapon theory in the media, I was probably a little uh, credulous at first just because I I assumed that, like, they must be basing that on some existing weapon if they're just speculating about it. But then I remember speaking with my coworkers at the time and finding myself more and more sort of skeptical of that official narrative. It's a sort of diplomatic mystery, right? There's a lot at stake in the story. It's about the U.S. trying to reestablish relations with Cuba. And then suddenly you have this idea that there's been a microwave attack come up. It feels just, there's so much that I don't understand about this story. (laughs) So I wanted to talk to people who had actually investigated this to see how they put everything together. And that's why we started with Jack Hitt, who had, I think, one of the best and more exhaustive stories on this in Vanity Fair. And that's where it all starts. It's an attack. It's a secret weapon, some kind of sonic weapon, right? Cubans had to know if they didn't do it, they had to know who did it. 
Remember, Trump, among the many things that came up during his campaign was that he was going to be ferociously anti-Cuban again, right? He had met with the veterans of the Bay of Pigs invasion. I mean, he signaled that we were turning the clock way back. We were going to make Cuba ungreat again, right? <laughs> and so it was well known that he was going to do everything he could to reverse the Obama-Biden policy of kind of trying to normalize relations. So under Obama, the U.S. embassy in Cuba grew its staff enormously. And then under Trump, even prior to two dozen people leaving for these medical reasons, they had been reducing the size of it, right? That's right. Yes, exactly. So this is one of the first theories about what happened, which is that Cuba itself is involved in some kind of attack on these U.S. diplomats. Here's what Tim Weiner thinks of the idea that this was a Cuban attack. It's not their M.O., He's the author of A History of the CIA and also a recent book on the history of the relationship between the United States and Russia. What would their MO be typically? To conduct uh, relations on the level of we spy on you, you spy on us. That's what countries do, but not to screw with you at that level. There is one hostile intelligence service that has been doing this sort of thing in different ways to American spies and diplomats abroad, and uh, it's the Russians. The question I have about this attack in Cuba is why attack the Cuban embassy? What would be in it for Russia to attack American diplomats in Cuba? Vladimir Putin, in his present incarnation as president for life of Russia, has been in different ways trying to wreak revenge against the United States and the West for the collapse of the Soviet Union, to weaken the United States, to hurt the United States, to damage our democracy and with it our diplomacy as a means of both wreaking revenge and of showing the world that American democracy is not all what it's cracked up to be. This is as close as we currently have to an official explanation of the cause of Havana syndrome. There have been medical studies looking into what the syndrome is, but in terms of what caused it, all we really have to go on is reporting in mainstream media outlets like NBC News, which said in 2018 that U.S. intelligence officials believe Russia was responsible for mystery attacks on diplomats in Cuba and elsewhere. Anyone who follows Russian intelligence operations knows that they are not shy about harming the enemies of the Russian government. They've been linked to numerous assassination attempts and so on. So... I can understand why it would be easy to believe that the Russians, using some unknown weapon, had attacked American diplomats. The question is, what would that weapon look like? The Weapon 3 went through a number of different permutations, in part because when the first um, members of the Havana embassy complained about this sound, they actually recorded it. It is this loud, insanely loud buzzing sound. Many of them claim to have heard this. The problem with that is that several scientists who study cicadas stepped up to note that this was almost certainly the screech of the Jamaican cricket. Um, and then one cricket expert came up and said, even though it's super loud, 
this sound wouldn't harm a human being. The only way that a Jamaican cricket could harm a human being is if you took the cricket and stuck it in your ear. <laughs> that was like the sonic cannon sort of theory, right? Exactly. As someone pointed out, like, for it to actually work, you would have to have something on the decibel of a jet plane outside the house to actually right. burn the inside of your ear. I didn't know this until I started reporting this story, but apparently there are three levels of sound out there in the known universe. There's infrasound, which is below the human hearing range. There's mm. acoustic sound, which we can hear. And then there's ultrasound. And so there are a variety of different theories about, well, okay, so it was an acoustic sound. Then it has to be ultrasound. Oh, that's not working? Oh, th then it was infrasound. And then it went to microwaves, and I believe the most recent is uh, radio frequency energy. Oh. So we're, we're really exhausting all the wavelengths. We're really we're coming <laughs> to the end of all possible known waves. Maybe x-rays. We have to look in that. So the FBI had looked into these three types of sound, ruled them all yes. out, correct? And so then the theorizing moves on. The next kind of preferred theory was microwaves. How was that supposed to work? So the, the main microwave theory had to do with something called the Frey effect, F-R-E-Y. And to the extent that I can, you know, as a journalist, I can even describe this since I really don't know what I'm talking about. Supposedly, the microwave would jiggle the, the water molecules in your ear, right? That's the way a microwave heats up food. And that's the way a microwave heats up food. It excites right. water molecules in food. Exactly. So th this would excite water molecules and raise the temperature in your inner ear, and I'm not making this up, by one one millionth of a degree. Mm -hmm. And this effect was said to possibly cause some kind of burning or damage inside your ear, and that would be the source of all the various symptoms. The problem with that theory is that the guy who discovered the Frey effect back in 1974, his name is Kenneth Foster. He stepped up and said that would be impossible, and this is a quote, any exposure you could give somebody that wouldn't burn them to a crisp would produce a sound too weak to have any effect. So before it would burn your inner ear, it would actually incinerate you. If we had a microwave gun that you could turn on someone's brain, it certainly seems like it would be more likely to cook them from the inside than, than cause mm -hmm. concussion symptoms. I exactly. say speaking also as a journalist who does not know the science right. here. But you're speaking as someone who has definitely reheated food. Yes. So at this point, talking to Jack, I felt like we had just entered the realm of spy fiction. It reminded me of Cold War era spy fiction in the way that it was also about like how the promise of technology, meaning like we could have ever more incredible weapons to use ourselves. And you know, in addition to this sort of like missile gap discussion of like the Russians have a microwave gun and we don't. Right. It kind of harkens back to this much earlier era when that felt like more of a possibility. So it's it's sort of weird to see this floated again in the explanation of something that happened in 2016. Yes. <laughs> so I asked Jack what he thought of the comparison between these weapons and what were effectively science fiction weapons from the 1960s. They didn't really work, but they were they were actual military and intelligence research behind some of these, right? Right. No, and they do work. The problem is, is that they're the size of semi-tractor trailers or sort of <laughs> ice cream trucks, these right. huge vehicles that they would back up. And, and you've probably heard of some of them, LRAD, a long-range acoustic device. I think it has been used. We've heard the military has at least threatened to use against some protesters mm -hmm. the device that actually causes this kind of burning sensation in your ear. But it's this gigantic weapon that's the size of a truck. The other thing that uh, DARPA came up with during the Cold War 
my favorite. It's called Medusa, which stands for Mob Excess Deterrent Using Silent Audio. <laughs> so let's just say the Pentagon and DARPA specifically has been trying to create this weapon and not succeeding. You know, if you could create this weapon and reduce it to a ray gun, some sort of Flash Gordon or interstellar galactic weapon, it would be amazing because 30 or so years of intense Pentagon research has not yielded one. So maybe somebody made this quantum leap without anybody else in the world finding out about it and managed to get it into Cuba and allegedly China and Russia and directed it at one or two people in those other countries, but mostly in Cuba. Mm -hmm. But let's just say the odds of that seem remote. Yes. Right, because what you're describing is essentially a kind of sniper attack using a weapon that the United States has never been able to develop. That's right. But that maybe another country could have. That would be how this would have to have been carried out because the attacks are targeted. They're only affecting Americans on diplomatic business in Cuba, Russia, China, and some Canadians. Well, so the Canadians who lived in the same neighborhood and spoke with the Americans. So uh, Mm -hmm. none of the other embassy officials from all the other countries (laughs) (laughs) were affected. Only people who played soccer with the Americans and they're off time, right? So where I end up with the weapon thing is that basically it just seems really unclear whether there could be a weapon like this. Right. I mean, I think we have motive. Perhaps we have opportunity. But we don't have the weapon. If this was Clue, we'd be unfinished. We would not be able to win a game of Clue. Absolutely not. But what (laughs) we do have is two dozen people who definitely did get sick and have since been part of studies about what they experienced. The Journal of the American Medical Association published a study in early 2018. They examined the symptoms and the brain scans of, of the various people. That study is very tenuous. So Mm. it barely says that something happened. There is no physical evidence that anything happened to anybody in Cuba. So they don't find any torn tissues or burnt eardrums or anything that would signify that something had altered the physiology of their heads, okay? And yet they said that they had all the symptoms of a concussion. Once this report came out, this was uh, widely referred to as the Immaculate Concussion. (laughs) So just to clarify, that isn't to say that the people who reported these symptoms didn't have the symptoms. No one is questioning that they had the symptoms, but there was no injury, like no physical injury or trauma that usually would be associated with symptoms like that. And if you look at the JAMA study, the editors actually append a note at the top of their own magazine saying, there's a lot of symptoms here that don't actually have any physical evidence. And so we urge caution in reading the study that we're publishing. Okay, it's very rare for JAMA or any scientific journal to publish a study and say, we really don't think this study is any good. The Journal of the American Medical Association followed up that study with a second published in the summer of 2019. 
Here's Adam Gaffney, a physician and writer who's been following the story since it was first reported. The second study was an MRI study, and it reported basically that there were structural issues, just to simplify it, that seemed to appear on the brain MRIs of these individuals who were evaluated at the University of Pennsylvania. The reality is that many of the kinds of symptoms and impairments that these individuals were found to have, and there was no control group, it was just these individuals, are not uncommon. In one article published um, in the Journal of Neurology, um, two neurologists noted that, in fact, the threshold of normal was basically 40% of, of all people would sort of fall below the abnormal level with the standards used. So according to Adam, this study was, was using a definition of normal brain scans that 40% of the population might not meet meaning it's hard to say what conclusions you can draw from these scans. So, so that, that's a major problem. And so it very well might be that we're seeing very common sorts of impairments. The second issue is this study used these very advanced MRI techniques that are used in research studies. And the kinds of things they found are not necessarily uncommon. You can do studies even on um, things like depression, and you will find abnormalities with these advanced MRI techniques. Long story short, these are not specific findings. So there was this number of different scientists who stepped up and said, like, what are you talking about? For instance, the main symptom that everyone complained of was tendonitis. And one in six Americans, uh, that's more people than have COVID have this problem. It's very common. And many of the symptoms that were described in there are, are common enough. And so unconnected to physical injury, it's empirically difficult to step up and say, has to be a secret weapon. Even if, I mean, as you say, the if you take the MRI study that says, well, these brains look different, that's obviously not proof that a weapon was used on them, of course, right? <laughs> So looking at the medical literature and you know, talking with Jack Hitt about the kind of weapon that could be used here, there's nothing that disproves the notion that this was a foreign attack using weapons. There's just also nothing that actually confirms it. So we have a collection of symptoms. We have people suffering from them. We have medical research into it. And we have one explanation for it so far. Is there another? I think the most likely explanation, one that accounts for all of the facts as we know them in the simplest possible way. But for journalists, the least satisfying <laughs> is what's known as uh, mass psychogenic illness, or what used to be called mass hysteria. Conversion disorder is the other phrase that is often used. It's called conversion disorder because intense stress under pressure is converted into real physical illness. And really the key thing that all of these conversion disorder scientists and doctors that I talked to said is that these are real symptoms. Conversion disorder makes you sick. Conversion disorder isn't faking it. You, no you feel it. it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Can I just tell a little, little personal anecdote? I so, would love it. <laughs> so tw many years ago, I was an editor at Harper's Magazine and I quit because I got a book contract. And so I was out on my own with this little advance and my little apartment in the West Village and a girlfriend uh, who had just quit her job to go back to graduate school. We were under intense financial stress. <laughs> and I started fainting. Like I would be walking down the street and I literally would have to just grab a stop sign. And sometimes I would just slump against the wall and fall to the ground. Now, you know, many years later, we all saw The Sopranos, and we know what that is. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, conversion disorder is real. I went to the doctor. I insisted that I must have had a brain tumor. I forced him to scan my brain. <laughs> I mean, it was like right out of a Woody Allen movie. I know I have a brain tumor. <laughs> I still have that uh, CAT scan. And it came back and he said, you have a beautiful brain. You are <laughs> under an enormous <laughs> amount of stress. Get a little bit more exercise. I did that and it went away. <laughs> so i mean this is a very unappealing story because right you having a brain tumor is much more dramatic especially if someone writing books you you really like i could get a brain tumor book out of this movie right (laughs) (laughs) and so if someone says they have ringing in their ears there's no way to measure that Mm. right someone says they have a headache you can't see that and so if you look at havana you have a situation where the embassy is under an enormous amount of pressure it's a closed system. All these guys are, you know, under secrecy and under oath and feel like they're in a hostile environment. And there's all this, you know, talk of closing down the embassy and shipping everybody home. So some of these doctors look at this and said the simplest explanation is that this is a classic instance of conversion disorder, of mass mm-hmm. psychogenic illness. So uh, the, how does the mass aspect of it work? Because um, what you describe with being stressed and then becoming very ill, I think that makes a lot of sense to anyone who's either experienced it or seen someone close to them experience it. Do we know anything about how the contagion element of it works? Just that these people are often in a pressure bubble of some kind. I ran across a, an incident in the Midwest where like 20 sophomores and juniors or something at a school who were under pressure to take a test suddenly all had contagious bouts of vomiting and missed the test. And it was one of those things where I heard so-and-so has this mysterious illness and, and you also don't want to take that test. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're vomiting. And, you know, if you Google back uh, 10, 20, 30 years, you will see that there are many instances, especially in schools, where a tight group will suddenly have a mysterious illness. You know, the famous example is fainting can sometimes seem to be contagious. One person faints and another person faints around them. And this isn't because, like, people are sort of weak-minded or anything. We're all susceptible to suggestion. We're all susceptible to placebo effects. And we're all susceptible to what gets referred to as nocebo effects, where you experience unpleasant things because you are expecting it. You look at the side effects report for the COVID vaccines, there's definitely side effects. But you actually see pretty high rates of side effects in the placebo arm, too. We're just getting saline. And, and all of us can have this. It's just human nature. And keep in mind, this was a time of great upheaval at the U.S. Embassy in Havana. Relations between the two countries had just changed enormously almost overnight. We talked to Natalie Shore, a journalist who has been investigating Havana syndrome and who is, full disclosure, married to Adam Gaffney. And what she points to is that these attacks begin in November 2016. Uh, I think for me, that's really when it starts to click. When you start to read some of the context in which the alleged attacks happened. Uh, The first one was reported, I believe, right after Trump was elected. And I think it became pretty clear to anyone working on the ground in Havana that their entire job was about to change in a way that really viscerally affected them. That's really stressful. The second person with these symptoms, I believe, reported them three months later in February. And we now know because of a CDC report that was foiled by BuzzFeed, we know that after the second case, so after two people with symptoms that included things like, you know, dizziness, headaches, fatigue, very common symptoms, after just two of them, the uh, whole group in Havana, all of the Americans serving there 
were basically gathered and, and told, listen, there are some mysterious symptoms that some people are experiencing. We don't know what we're dealing with. So, you know, if you, if you feel something like fatigue, headaches, dizziness, there might be some secret attacks going on targeting your family. Just keep an eye out. If anything seems amiss, be sure to call us. Or if you want to get tested, let us know. Of course, that opens the floodgates, right? So at this point, I am feeling like the mass psychogenic illness explanation really makes a lot of sense. Yes. And I definitely believed that that political context made a sort of tidy explanation for what happened. There was just one problem that came up when we were talking to Tim. Havana is actually a very nice place to be posted. It's just not that high stress zone. I've been a reporter seven times in Afghanistan and in various war zones and hellholes. So I know what stress is like. The American embassy in Baghdad in 2004, that was stressful, I'm sure. Various CIA outposts in Afghanistan and Iraq over the last 20 years, that's stress. Being the second secretary in Havana, not so stressful. Havana is a great place. Cubans love Americans. They don't like our government. We don't like their government. It's fine. Let's have some rum. So even even under the early days of the Trump administration, Havana's kind of a, a fun posting. <laughs> Have you ever been to Havana? I would, I would love to go, but I haven't. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. I, let me try and restate this. The building out of which Americans operate in Havana is a fortress. And the only way you could penetrate it is with a microwave weapon. Or a tank, maybe. And... To explain this away as some sort of psychosomatic ulcer, I don't buy it. So once again, I found myself compelled by an explanation from the most recent person I talked to. Maybe Havana was not that stressful. Where does that leave us, Laura? I mean, I think that where that leaves us is that we've considered two explanations now, and both of them feel like they've fallen apart. Or at least we cannot point to a big stack of really compelling evidence that says, like, this is the definitive explanation. So what do you think we should do next? I think we should ask Natalie and Adam uh, what they think about it. We'll be back after the break. So Adam and Natalie, we talked to Tim Weiner, who spent a long time reporting on the CIA. I, I was asking him about the stress theory, and he said, well, you're, you're wrong, because Havana is not a stressful posting. Havana is probably a good posting to have in a lot of years. But I do think that if you look at exactly when this happened, late 2016, early 2017, it seems like there is a reason to believe, circumstantially, that that might have been more stressful than usual. Why do you think people are so resistant to the idea that this could be caused by stress or by exposure to a group in which there is some kind of psychogenic illness? I think there is still stigma around the notion of mental illness causing physical suffering, or at least lack of familiarity. And I want to be very clear, I'm not making any kind of assessments of any individuals. I'm just dealing with the big questions here. So as you guys have pointed out in your tweets, there's a very large number of journalists, serious people who report on diplomatic relations, who report on Russia, national security, who seized on this story and presented it as a story about a Russian attack on the United States. 
what was your reaction to seeing the story framed that way? And what do you think's going on there? Well, so I do think it's really important to recognize that I think three long-form features that I'm aware of, deeply reported stories in ProPublica, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times Magazine appeared about this in 2018 and 2019, basically all coming to the conclusion that it is very likely sociogenic functional neurological disorder. And then the story reappeared somewhat recently, really being peddled by national security reporters. So those are people who I don't think are very well versed in uh, a lot of this literature who, you know, aren't engaging with it as a health topic very seriously. It's funny because it's changed character politically. Initially, it was posited that the Cubans are doing this when it was Havana syndrome in 2016, 2017, and that that was sort of used by the Trump administration as a pretext to seriously tamp down our diplomatic presence in Cuba and, you know, reorient ourselves in terms of uh, our diplomatic stance toward the country. And then I think as time went on, this was sort of pushed by maybe more liberal leaning people as, you know, hey, look, the the CIA is and the Trump administration by extension are kind of trying to suppress the story of these attacks because they are in cahoots with Putin. And so it's, you know, served two different political ends in ways that I think people found to be, you know, reifying of the narratives that they had already preferred, but neither of which had actually much uh, expository value in terms of what really happened. What do you think about the fact that it it started as a story about what was happening at the embassy in Cuba, but then it spread to these other outposts, so like China, Russia, other parts of the world where the U.S., has a sort of uncomfortable relationship. How did the story kind of develop when those cases were added? I think, first off, the spread to multiple continents should heighten skepticism about the particular weapon theory. But second thing, just kind of reinforcing Natalie's point, this has served different political sort of agendas at different times. It was used to sort of wreck detente with Cuba that that had been established during the Obama administration. And then I think more recently, it's been sort of seen as a way to criticize Trump, that Trump is not taking firm action with Russia, which has been obviously a longstanding story. So I think it's very interesting through the political lens in terms of the agendas that it has supported. What do you guys think that the implications of accepting stress, what what are the political implications of accepting that that's the explanation? I mean, I think that it would be a huge embarrassment, right? If we do accept that this was a function of stress, then we also have to admit that we pushed Cuba away again under completely phony pretexts. And I think that that's a really uncomfortable thing for people to deal with. I think there have also been many people who have been very critical of the Trump administration in light of what they see as, you know, the suppression of the truth about these attacks and what they see as Putin and Trump working in cahoots with one another. That narrative also falls apart if you accept that these symptoms are stress-induced or induced by uh, means that aren't a secret microwave attack. Uh, And so I think that a lot of people have a lot of face to lose if that happens. I agree with Natalie. I might make a broader kind of philosophical medical point, which is that I think it would 
drive home the fact of, of how difficult it can be for all of us as individuals to sometimes know the, the causes of our physical symptoms and our physical suffering. I think that's an uncomfortable thing to assert because it veers into a, a, a sort of denialism. But I think it's true. We can be wrong. And doctors can be certainly wrong too, to be clear. How do you think that this fits in with the kind of very heightened attention on the U.S. relationship with Russia in the last four years, which has, and there's such a range of opinion on this from, I think, people who certainly acknowledge a, a range of attacks on the United States by Russia to people who kind of see Russian aggression towards the United States as the explanation for almost everything that's happened in politics here for the last four years. And where do you think that this story fits in to that? Yeah, so the evidence that Russia had anything to do with the attacks that I don't believe ever even happened, that evidence is practically non-existent. And there's no doubt in my mind that if this potentiality was being raised about any other country, that that wouldn't fly at the New York Times or at GQ, two outlets that recently pushed a very jingoistic version of this story reifying the idea that these were weapon attacks and that Russia was behind it. I think that that's a function of the fact that people have been pushing stories wherein Russia is a very reductive, two-dimensional evil character, and that that feels true enough that it doesn't require much more inquiry. And I think that that's a shame, and it's sort of amazing to step back and see that this sort of story has been accepted by the mainstream so wholeheartedly because it's Russia and not another country. Yeah, and I would just add, I think this just goes to show why we have to be critical of, of, of the science, um, because these sorts of things can lead countries to war, right? I'm not saying this will, and I'm not saying that it's not even on par with that, but these sorts of things can, and that's why we have to be so critical and only assert what we know. One way to see these kinds of things is like these real outliers and like really fascinating, bizarre, sort of medical fascinomas. So it's like, okay, this is something like interesting. We're going to write about this. But I think it really is on a spectrum with like just common lived experience in a way that gets missed. An example I had at one point last March, I, I, I suddenly felt like I had might have symptoms of COVID. It was like very mild things that I noticed. It took, maybe it tickled on my throat. Oh, wait, is there a little bit of chest tightness in my chest? Stuff like that. And, and then I got tested. It goes negative. And then it occurred to me afterwards, wait, like I always kind of feel like that. Like I, I literally, my own concern and worry that I might like infect my ICU was what was actually making me aware of my own symptoms in a way that once it, I was no longer worried about that, I came to recognize that that's actually always my like baseline throat sensation. I think that's why you get some of the pushback because people effectively feel that like you're saying, you know, that people who have symptoms that may have a psychogenic component are sort of unwell and they're actually just human. But the thing that makes it a mystery is all of the political tensions that surround these groups of people, our relations with Cuba, our relations with Russia. Yeah, you might call it like a sociopolitical genic illness. Coined on the show. There's nothing worse than a podcast that does not solve a mystery. But at least this was only one episode <laughs> <laughs> instead of an entire season. But <laughs> Laura, <laughs> well, I, yeah, you... I don't think we were ever going to solve the mystery. <laughs> no, I don't I don't think we were either. Let, let me just say, as a reporter, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but the <laughs> first time I heard the phrase sonic weapon, 
I was mm. like, oh, yes, <laughs> I want to report this story. I talked to my editor. I was like, there's a sonic weapon. I've done DARPA reporting before. I've got sources inside the Pentagon. I got to find out about the sonic weapon. And, <laughs> and instead you found out about crickets and <laughs> crickets. And then, and then, of course, this, this lousy explanation that makes too much sense. Oh, yeah, right. I've, I've actually experienced stress. So what right. you're saying totally makes sense to me, sadly. So it's safe to say we did not have the last word on Havana syndrome. There's been a lot of new reporting and new stories since we aired this. When we were talking about it before, we were talking about people in Cuba who reported symptoms that were being called Havana syndrome. Since those early cases, there have been several cases of people reporting having Havana syndrome who are not in Cuba. People who work for the U.S. government but are posted in China or Russia saying, I also have Havana syndrome. I think this is bigger than just Cuba. In more recent months, there have been many more cases reported. There's now over 130, according to latest news reports. And many of these people work for the CIA, the State Department, and the Department of Defense. Two of them, in fact, were White House staff. And they think that they have been targeted in some way on U.S. soil. What most of the reporting has in common, I think, and I might be editorializing here, is that the primary sourcing is still mostly the American intelligence agencies or people who work for the American intelligence agencies. This reporting still straightforwardly, I think, credulously treats these incidents as attacks by nefarious actors. And by and large, to my mind, still fails to explain or produce evidence for a weapon, a weapon that could have caused the myriad symptoms that are Havana syndrome. So in that sense, there's been a lot of new news but not really any updates on the sort of underlying fundamental issue that we were trying to get at in this episode. And I think with these cases, as with the earlier cases, the same questions come up, which is, are all of these illnesses of a piece? Are they the same syndrome or are they unrelated? And what could the cause of them be? There still isn't a kind of a hard link between a weapon or a particular aggressor that links these cases. And yet it is being increasingly treated as not necessarily a provable fact, but as like the assumption of the government that Russia is doing this. For the most part, the story will typically contain a paragraph that says the Biden administration has no official position on this. They haven't declared that these are even attacks. But then it will say, but there is a consensus within the intelligence community about what this is. And in many cases, that consensus, it will say, is that this is an attack from Russia. And I think in large part because we've seen a lot of members of Congress and so on take a huge amount of interest in this, the U.S. government is demonstrating that it's taking it very seriously. So the CIA director will be taking regular briefings from a task force that is looking into this. One report said that they would be approaching this with the rigor and intensity with which they approached finding Osama bin Laden. I hope they don't mean the rigor and intensity that they used finding bin Laden in 2001 through 2008, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think that is actually a sort of a worrying note. If you work from the assumption that this was an attack and still in the public, we haven't seen hard evidence of that, then you are approaching a kind of escalation of tensions between Russia and the United States that may not be warranted. 
because we don't know if this fits into a pattern of Russian aggression. We just don't know if it's even an attack. Either way, this is a workplace health story, really. And I think we tried to really make clear that Havana syndrome is a real thing people are actually suffering from, regardless of its causes or origins. And what those people want is for the government to take their health seriously and to help them get treatment. That is the hopeful result of this, is that the people who are suffering actually get the government to take that suffering seriously and help them. The unhopeful end of this is that it's sort of justification for additional ratcheting of tensions on our side. I think that's also what has made coverage of the story really difficult over the last several years. If you express any skepticism about the causes of Havana syndrome, any skepticism that Havana syndrome is caused by Russian attack, you risk being perceived as someone who is skeptical of Russian aggression at all. And I think that an important thing to draw out in talking about Havana syndrome is that you can be critical of Russia's stance towards the US and you can recognize a pattern of Russian aggression, which has included recent hacks. At the same time, you can also acknowledge that we haven't proven that this is part of that pattern. We cannot promise another episode on Havana syndrome, but obviously the story is far from over. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our producer, Emily Cook, has not yet taken a public position on whether or not this is our last episode on Havana syndrome. Right, but I'm hearing there's a a strong consensus. (laughs) There's a a strong (laughs) consensus within the politics of everything community that there may be more to this story. Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Kevin O'Connell is our audio engineer. If you enjoy the Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, something you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening.